When I was, uh, first time I remember going out to a Chinese restaurant, uh, I believe I was in college, we were, I was singing somewhere with some people, and these folks took us to a Chinese restaurant, and, uh, you know, some of it was quite good. I mean, that was the first time for me. I was, you know, really uh, scared of the whole thing. But I grabbed this, this big, white, mushy thing and stuck it in my mouth, and I could not wait to get it out. Uh, I, I, to this day, I'm not, I've asked people what they think it is, and everybody's got different ideas, but whatever it was, it was mushy, and it was, it was way too sweet for me. And I thought, boy, if I, if I never get another one of those, it'll be too soon. Some things just don't taste as good as they look. You go through the buffet line, you make your selection, you take it back to your table, you get all situated and you lay a nice healthy bite on your tongue and you think, what have I done? <laughs> as we come to Matthew 5, what we're going to learn today is this. There's only one thing that will really taste good. There's only one thing that will really satisfy the hunger in your soul. Please follow as I read, starting in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went, on a, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed, or happy, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We need to hunger and thirst for righteousness because it is the thing that fills or satisfies us. And I want to look at some reasons today as to why we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the first one is this. It's because righteousness brings freedom. What does it feel like to live with sin? Well, sometimes it feels like that. You know, this is a, this is a real picture. Uh, I looked it up and I found a, 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 uh, an article on Snopes, which is, a, which is a website that checks out fantastic claims. And they said, yes, this is uh, very much true. Um, it was, it was, the picture was taken by a fellow who works for another lumber company. These people had gotten their lumber at Home Depot. And there's a woman in the seat who's asleep, and uh, the materials were loaded at Home Depot. The Home Depot store manager made the customer sign a waiver before loading. Both back tires are trashed. The back shocks were driven up through the floorboard. On the roof are many 2x4s, 4x4s, and OSB sheeting. The load isn't all that meets the eye, either. In the back seat were 10 80-pound bags of concrete. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sometimes sin feels like that. It, it did for David. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Sometimes sin just feels like a sliver. You know, it hurts, it's there, but you can kind of ignore it. But there's just this little nagging sense of pain every once in a while. Sometimes it feels like a load that's crushing you. God says, 
Righteousness is what will satisfy you because righteousness brings freedom. It takes the weight of sin off us. To him who does not try to earn salvation, but believes on him who makes righteous the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. You know, the burden of sin goes beyond just the the sense of guilt we might have about things we've done. It goes on to the burden that comes as as we look to God and we look to heaven and we think, I've got to work, I've got to do things, I've got to be a better person. I'm not going to make it when I die. And that burden of, of, of uncertainty and the burden of, of wanting to be, to be ready for heaven adds to the load. But when we stop working and start believing in the person of Christ, that He died for our sins, that we're sinners, that we can't save ourselves... When we believe that, we have freedom. And it starts with our relationship with God. Having been justified or made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To live at peace, to be truly free. You cannot carry sin and live in peace. Peace only comes through the forgiveness of sin. Sin is heavy, but forgiveness replaces the burden with freedom. If there's a burden in your heart today, if you're you're struggling to know about your life, you can be free. You can be at peace, but it only will come if you will believe in Christ. Righteousness also brings goodness, brings goodness to life. Our society wants to believe that they can build a good life while living in sin. But this is what God says about that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. He who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. When he talks about sowing to the flesh, or the, the word sowing is like putting seeds down. And he says, in your life, you are planting a future crop. And he says, you, you are taking the seeds of your behavior and you're either planting it in sinful behavior, that's the, 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 the behavior of your sinful flesh, or you're planting seeds in spiritual life in genuinely living for God. He says, you're planting those seeds, and he says, God is not going to be mocked. In other words, you're not going to put one over on God. When you plant those seeds of either sin or righteousness, they will grow up into a crop, and there will be a crop of either either blessing or corruption. See this word that he used here, corruption? The word corruption means to bring into a worse condition. I mean, the, the word as it was originally used could have been applied to something that, you know, like when food goes bad, you would say it's decayed or it's corrupted or it's rotted, that sort of thing. To bring into a worse condition. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If he plants seeds of sin, he's going to reap corruption. What does that corruption look like? What does spiritual corruption look like? It looks like this. Know that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, 
unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. How, how does a person go from wanting to be good to actually accomplishing corruption in their life? You cannot pursue your rights to the extent of taking a human life without becoming brutal. The scripture says what's going to happen to people in the end times are going to become brutal. You think, how did people get to be so brutal? Why does a guy just go out in the street and just shoot somebody? Why does a guy get in a, get in a, a road rage with somebody and then shoot the guy? How does he get to be that brutal? He gets to be that brutal by, by planting seeds of not caring about human life. You cannot demand the recognition of your personal goodness without becoming self-absorbed. You cannot despise authority figures without becoming a lawbreaker. You cannot be focused on personal justice without becoming unforgiving. You cannot pursue sexual pleasure outside of marriage without diminishing your love for God. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If your life is about planting seeds all in sinful pleasure, it cannot be about building a relationship with God. You cannot hang on to sin without turning your walk with God into a mere religious form. Look at that. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. How does that happen? It happens when we're always planting the seeds of sin and then we think, well, I'm going to go to church and please God. And, and what you end up with is a form of godliness, but there's no power to it. And so your life becomes corrupt. It decays. Sin corrupts life. That is, it brings life to a worse condition. Why should we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because righteousness builds up life. Righteousness strengthens life. Listen to the very first psalm, blessed or happy. Sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 5. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or the way that ungodly people think, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Someone draws this very picturesque image of the righteous life and the unrighteous life. And he says the righteous man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And the word rivers there could really well be translated the irrigation ditch. What's the difference between an irrigation ditch and a just plain river? Well, the irrigation ditch, the water is there on purpose every time the tree needs it. And so if you're a tree planted where there is irrigation, you're going to grow and be stronger and stronger and stronger. 
and, and, and you're going to become this marvelous, uh, strong oak tree. But the ungodly are not so. And in fact, they're not even like a tree. They're like the chaff. That's like the, the husk off of the grain. When they would harvest grain, they would have animals walk on it or people walk on it, and it breaks the, the shell off the outside of the kernel of wheat or whatever grain they had. And then they would throw that up in the air, and the, the light part, the shell, would, would blow away, and the good grain would fall to the ground. He said, that's how the ungodly are. What is he saying? He's saying that the ungodly have become weak in their life, and when difficulty comes, they just blow away with the tide of life. What's that look like in real life? One of the most picturesque examples I've ever seen was with a, a man and woman that I met when their, when their baby died of sudden infant death syndrome. They were not married. The, the man in the relationship was not a Christian. And as a result of this child dying and the witness of family members, he accepted Christ as his Savior. Um, they got married uh, very quickly after this thing happened. I guess they'd been planning to get married. And he got saved and baptized, became part of our church, and he became a disciple and became growing in the Lord, growing in the Lord, growing in the Lord. His wife invested her life in alcohol. Her, her, his wife invested her life in partying because that will dull the pain. There's no doubt. That will dull the pain. And in a very short while, they were separated and divorced. And he kept on walking with the Lord, walking with the Lord. And on the one-year anniversary of the death of his child, he was at the funeral of a child of some friends consoling them. And where was his wife? Up partying somewhere. You want to be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season? You want to be strong? You want to be capable? You want to be good? Or do you want to be like the husk off the grain, just blowing around wherever life takes you, trying to make the best of what comes righteousness brings goodness we should hunger for it because it brings goodness and it also brings meaning king solomon in the old testament was wise and rich and powerful and he made an in-depth study of the meaning of life and this is the introduction to the summary of his research if you were writing a paper today you would call this your thesis statement Vanity of vanities, or emptiness of emptiness, says the preacher. Emptiness of emptiness, everything is empty. What profit has a man from all his labor and what he toils under the sun? One generation passes away, another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and it comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers came there, they return again. All the things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. That which is done under the sun, that which is done will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That sounds like a book you want to read, right? <laughs> Guys, really up on life. 
Now remember, this is a guy who had all the money, fame, prestige, influence, power. He had it all. And so his investigation of life could be as deep and wide and long as he wanted it to be. And the key to understanding this book, if you spend some time in it, is this phrase right here, under the sun. He said, you know, as I just look around at life, it, it's just a constant churning and turning over and over and over. Nothing new comes, nothing, you know, nothing really happens. And when he gets all the way to the end of this study, what does he say? What is the moral? What is his conclusion? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole study. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is, a, this is both a positive and a negative or a challenging statement, if you will. He says, look, you want to know what brings meaning to life? Walk with God. Walk with God, because God is going to bring everything into judgment. Now, for the Christian, that is a positive statement. Because God is going to look at our life someday, and if I understand the inferences of Scripture, His righteousness is going to burn up everything sinful I've done in my life, and the stuff that I've done that's righteous will be left, and He calls it gold, silver, and precious stones, and I'm going to be rewarded for what I have done for him. Now, that's not talking about earning salvation. Salvation has already been decided on whether or not you believe in Christ as your Savior. But once you have believed in Christ, you have the opportunity to live for God and to serve God. And so when, when, when Solomon didn't even know all of this truth that I'm sharing with you now because he lived uh, you know, before Christ came to the earth and so on, Solomon was part of God's plan, but, but he didn't know that, that this is going to be a positive thing as well as it could be a negative thing. And what I mean by negative is this, you will stand in front of God someday either as a believer who has attempted to serve the Lord and you will receive a reward, a appreciation from God. Some of that is referred to as crowns in the New Testament. And you will be ushered into heaven to enjoy heaven and to worship God and so on. Or you will stand before God as an unbeliever. And as the book of Revelation says, he will open up the books and he will say, let's see, did you believe in Christ? And what, what about the rest of your life? Was it sinful or righteous? And so as, as, uh, as Solomon comes down to the conclusion of his study, he goes, yeah, there's a lot of routine things in life. But you should live your life for God because someday you will answer to God or be rewarded by God. And ultimately, that is what brings meaning to life. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we had John Surkar here. This is, a, I think, an older picture of him with some of the folks that he ministers to in Bangladesh. And if you remember his testimony and some of the things we heard from him, he turned down a huge salary and a safe job. He would have been working for an organization where there would have been no real problem with his personal safety. 
he gave up a big salary and a safe job to put himself into harm's way so that he could establish churches like this, where people would reach folks for Christ. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he said, you know, someday I'm going to stand before Christ, and Christ is going to look at my life, and I want to be able to stand there and say, I have invested my life well. We also saw the Molsey family. This picture is minus one right there. New little baby. Well, this is a doctor, a medical doctor. And, and even though she's only been practicing for a couple of years, she's built up practice, built up relationships with people. And she's leaving that to go to a place where it's so hot that the thermometer pigs out all the way sometimes. And where the chance for her family to get sick from disease is high. Why is she going to do that? Why is her husband going to do that? They're going to do that because they want to reach people for Christ because that is a, where life becomes meaningful. That's also why people serve in our church right here. Why do people give their time and money? You know, a few weeks ago I was at, I was working out, and this fella that I've come to know, who's kind of a public figure there, he says, do you, is your, is your, do you have a full-time job or do you have to work somewhere else? No, it's full-time. The church people pay for that? I said, yeah, they pay for that. Just, just by giving? I said, yeah, just by giving. And I, I could see that somehow he had been thinking about that. And here's a guy whose life must be about money or something like that. And, and he's just going, wow, people give that much? You know? And I said, yeah. And I said, in fact, we give this much to missions and we do this and that. Why? Why do you write that big check? Why does it hurt sometimes? Because we want to make an investment in eternity because that's what satisfies. Righteousness satisfies. Look what the Apostle Paul said about ministry. What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? What, what is my life focused on? What's the greatest thing in my life? Isn't it, it, isn't it even you? He's talking to these people from Thessalonica. Isn't it even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? The Apostle Paul, he didn't say, man, I have a big house or I have a, you know, a big donkey that I ride on or whatever it is, you know. He said, yeah, I got the latest model of donkey there. But <laughs> He said, you're what makes my life go. He said, I am so excited about you. He said, when I stand before the Lord, I'm going I'm to be excited to be there because of you. And somehow that's, the, that's what it means to to hunger for righteousness. What is it I'm trying to do in my life? Who is it I'm trying to be? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? If we invest ourselves in righteousness and the, and the works of righteousness, there is meaning for life. Well, fourthly, righteousness brings confidence. Why should we invest in righteousness? Why should we pursue it? It brings confidence. What do I mean by confidence? Well, one thing that is certain, you know the, how the saying goes, the only thing that's certain is change. Change is going to come. I would put it this way, nobody knows what a day will bring. That's what God said in James. He says, come now, you who are rich, and you say today or tomorrow, we're going to go here and do this. He says, you don't know what a day will bring. We don't know what a day will bring. Often we look to the future, and we find ourselves in a hard spot because we think, you know, here's where I want to go, 
but here's where God wants me to go. But I'm, I'm afraid to go, I'm, excuse me, I'm afraid to go the way God wants because I don't think it's going to be as good as this way or I think it's going to have some hardship attached to it. The apostles found themselves in a place like that in, as they were witnessing for Christ in the early days after Christ left the earth. And when, when they, that's the, uh, the leaders of Jerusalem, when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. I'd call that a hard spot. I don't know about you. <laughs> I've never been beaten. I've had some people upset a few times, but I've never been beaten over preaching. Um, I'm certainly hoping that won't happen in a couple of weeks when I'm in that other large country. But uh, they, they beat him and they said, now you stop preaching Jesus. That's a pretty clear why in the road. Can I, should, you know, uh, my, in my flesh I want to go this way and just stop preaching, but in my spirit I know that this is the right thing to do. So what are these guys going to do? Well, you know the rest of the story. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be beaten and suffer shame for the name of Christ. And daily in the temple and every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. What, what effect did that beating have on them? <laughs> None whatsoever, except that they said, wow, we are living like Christ. They're beating us like they did him. And, and internally, they thought, we must be doing something right. Isn't that upside down from the way American Christians think? We think, well, if we do everything just right, everybody's going to love us. And it isn't going to happen. Why were these apostles so brave? I think the answer was penned by Paul here. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's a pretty extreme statement. He said, you know what? As I get up in the morning and I look at my life, I say, I'm going to honor the Lord today. It could be by dying. Or it could be by living. Whatever it is, I'm going to honor the Lord today. He had no problem making the hard decisions of righteousness. Our fear of living righteously revolves around not having the future we want. But the future of the believer is absolutely bright with possibilities for honoring God, but it may not come in the way you think. Sometimes God chooses to end lives at a time that we deem early. But he does so with great witness for himself. Sometimes God chooses to let us wait for a long time for that special relationship but it brings great blessing. Sometimes God chooses to let us go through things we wouldn't wish on others in order to make us fit for some special ministry. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we can be confident as we look forward. We go, you know what? My life is going to be great as long as I walk with the Lord. You know what Job went through? He had Job had all of those difficulties. He lost his home and his business and his family. And he had uh, boils on his body. He was sick. And look what he says. I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. 
After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. What's he saying? He says, I know I'm going to be resurrected someday. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Oh man, I saw that phrase this week. I thought, that is the greatest thing. How my heart yearns within me. Does your heart yearn to see the Lord or just to have some other pleasure on this planet? See, that's our real problem. We think, we think well, here, here's, here's the path I want, and there's God's path, and, and ultimately God's path is going right to be with Jesus. But I, I really like this thing. I really want this thing, this relationship, this experience, this whatever it is. And God says, let go of that and hunger and thirst for me because I will give you confidence about what's ahead. Not only confidence, but real satisfaction. The word, the word in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, gives the idea of satisfied. Remember this event from the life of Christ? Jesus answered and said to her, um, Chuck read the scripture earlier. We're going to read the highlight from it. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again will thirst, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give will be, become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come here to draw. And Jesus said, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. What's Jesus trying to teach this woman? He's trying to teach her this. Sin will not bring you satisfaction. And that's a very simple little truth, but we have really got to wrap our hearts around it. Sin will not bring satisfaction, but righteousness not only brings satisfaction, but it becomes an overflowing thing in our life so that we have for ourselves and to share with others. Now, I have no doubt understanding that this woman had moments of joy, moments of hope for the future, perhaps even moments when her life seemed to have some meaning that revolved around her family. But the ultimate reality was emptiness of soul because she was not seeking those things in a righteous way. This is a fellow named Tony Scott. Him and his brother Ridley Scott made a lot of movies. This fellow was the director of the movie Top Gun. Okay? He jumped off a bridge and killed himself a couple months ago. He didn't have a terminal illness. He didn't leave a note that explained his life or his problem. He just ended his life. Now, I mean, the guy is famous. He's influential. He's rich. He had no observable problems. And he kills himself. What in the world sense does that make? About as much sense as a lawyer in Seattle who's well-esteemed and successful and has a family and goes around raping women at massage parlors. 
What in the world sense does that make? It doesn't make any sense at all. Except this. Sin will not satisfy your soul. Righteousness will. Sin doesn't satisfy the soul. Sometimes you want to spit it out like a bad choice at the buffet line. Sometimes you fill up on it and you're still not satisfied. You can go after things, but they won't help. You know, a lot of people are working, working, working to be secure in retirement. That's the goal of their life, is to have a wonderful retirement. I heard a fascinating a little study the other day where they said some people are saying they'll have to work till they're 80 to have enough money to retire. And the average lifespan in the U.S. of A. is 78.5. I'd call that rolling the dice. You can pursue money and come up empty. You can pursue intimacy through sex and end up feeling more lonely than when you started. You can chase achievement and status only to find that nobody cares what you've become. Or you can take what God offers righteousness, and this will be your experience. Ho, everyone who's thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. What's this about buying without money? What he's talking about is the fact that the way that we become righteous is through faith in Christ. There's no cost in money. God doesn't say you, you have to do a bunch of things or give a bunch of things. You need to let go of your own pride and say, I can't save myself. I will believe in Christ. And then as a Christian, you have to continue to say, I will let go of my own ways and I will follow Christ's way. And when you do that, you get genuinely full. Righteousness brings freedom, goodness, meaning, confidence, satisfaction, and it brings a singular focus. Or I might even put it this way, righteousness needs to be our singular focus. You mislooked completely to Jesus for your direction. And this is in answer to the question, what does it mean to hunger for righteousness? What does it mean to hunger for righteousness? We know what righteousness gives us. We know what sin gives us. But what does it mean to hunger? Well, it means, first of all, that you look completely to Jesus for your direction. I love these picturesque words from the Psalms. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. In our first ministry, Sue and I managed some apartments to get free rent. We had a nice big apartment, didn't have to do too much work, but, but I'm always busy about things, you know, and I discovered the chainsaw about that time. And I thought, this is the greatest thing. <laughs> and I went out to prune a very large tree, and I dropped a very large branch on the incoming power line to one of our buildings. And I subsequently got fired from being the manager of those apartments. <laughs> Because I was taking my initiative, not putting myself 
at the feet of the boss saying, what do you want me to do? Here I am. I'm your servant. You want a hunger for righteousness? Put yourself at the feet of Jesus. Say, Jesus, here I am. I'm yours to direct. Let go of the other pursuits or submit those pursuits to Christ to make sure they're the ones He wants you to pursue. Put yourself at His feet. And what will He say? What will He say first and foremost? He will say, seek direction in my word. Seek direction in my word. God has told us Everything we know for life, we need to know for life and godliness. Now, I, I understand that God perhaps doesn't, he doesn't write ahead of time whether or not we should go to China. But he gives us the principles that are there that we can apply those principles and say, is this a good decision? Is this a right decision? Is it the thing we should do? And so we can move forward while we are staying at his feet and waiting for his direction. What is the big direction of, that God will give you in his word? It's this right here. Go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That's the big instruction under which everything else flows for us as a Christian. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to, is to accept God's priority for my life of being a disciple, first of all, a believing, baptized, obeying disciple, and then helping others to become the same thing. A couple of weeks ago or so, Sue and I had Malachi and Kylie out to dinner, and as dinner was winding down, I said, do you want some more, uh, Malachi, some more pizza? No, I'm full. Never heard that before. <laughs> but he was full. I said, okay, yeah. Would you like some ice cream when we get home? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, I thought you were full. Not for ice cream. <laughs> Where's your hunger today? Is your hunger for the righteousness of God? Or are you still trying to fill up on other things? I just want to encourage you today to let go of the other stuff and let God fill you up. Heavenly Father, speak to us through your word. Help us to let go of the other things that we hunger for and just sit at your feet. And as we do that, help us to know your satisfaction beyond anything we've known before. I pray in Christ's name, amen.